You know, one of the reasons why I've loved being a part of New Wine since, well, for all these years, and why I hardly ever say no to anything they ever ask me to do, is because I so appreciate being for one another, being for other churches, wanting others to prosper and succeed and do well. I love that that was at the heart of the beginning of New Wine. That's what really David had in mind. How can we bless the the church, you know, the whole church, and how can that work out in an effective way? And so uh, I've been so grateful for those relationships and so grateful to have some small part of that. Really appreciate uh, Mark and Lindsay hosting us today and opening their home here at the at St. Paul's to us, and just grateful for all of you who have a heart to connect with others and want to be encouraged and encourage. And I just want to affirm that I think that what we do in leading churches is the most important work in the world. I really do believe that together as God's people, we are as what Jesus said we are. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And The world desperately needs the church to be the church. The world desperately needs to see the church function in committed love and in graciousness and sacrificial service. It desperately needs that. It changes things. What you do makes a a huge difference. I know that maybe on Monday particularly it doesn't feel like enough difference sometimes or in the frustration and the hardship that you might feel like a little bit like Moses, but, but if whatever it counts to hear it from a, a distant friend, that what you do really matters. And the fact that you want to invest and explore and wrestle with how that can happen, how God can do more with what you're doing and how you can be a blessing to others who are doing it, then that says a, a lot. I'm glad that we had a chance to spend this day together. Anybody want to, maybe some stuff came up over lunch or want to throw in a a comment or ask a question as we begin our last session together? Anything like that come up over lunch or you want to ask about something? You guys are so gracious. Are we okay? All right. Well, I'm going to put you to work a little bit this afternoon, so... uh, So don't let lunch settle too far down. Uh, I want to, if you have your Bible with you, turn to Luke 15, because I want to just for a moment explore something there, and then we'll turn our focus on some of the issues raised. This, to me, is like this this passage changed everything for me about about, uh, following Christ. Very famous passage, you're all familiar. I'm just going to start with the first few verses of it. It says, Now tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. He tells three parables there. We, we know them. They're familiar to us. He tells about the missing sheep from the flock. He tells about the missing coin from the woman's purse. And he tells about the missing son from the father's family. All of those three parables that Jesus teaches in Luke 15 have one point behind them, and that is to address 
this criticism of the Pharisees. I love how Luke 15 begins. There is something I pray for out of this passage every day. That here you have Jesus, this holy, perfect, righteous one, who was is without compromise, uh, without corruption, and really sinful people want to be around him. There's something in that, isn't it? And we all know the winsomeness of Jesus, but this graciousness, this way of, of being holy and righteous and yet not disconnected from the most broken, I mean, tax collectors, you know, the traitors to their own people, you know, the equivalent in maybe some of our communities to, to gang members, drug dealers who've turned against their own people who are exploiting and abusing, uh, taking advantage of others. That's what tax, tax collectors were. The Romans sold tax collection like a franchise system to the highest bidder. And then whatever you can take on top of that, you got to keep. You can imagine what that produced. And here, tax collectors want to be gathering and listening to Jesus, you know, sitting at his table with him. It, this, this combination of, of commitment to what's right and true and holy and just and this profound commitment and engagement with those who are anything but that, that, that unique thing, that's, uh, I just say, Lord, touch us, touch, touch my life with more of that. Not that I, I have a long way to go on the sanctification, you know, curve, but, but touch my life with more of that genuineness, the, the real thing and, and the ability to relate in gracious and real ways with, with those who are not that. Um, so you have this setting, you have the criticism we've already talked about. This is uh, one of the primary points. I think we could speculate a bit on the criticism. I think it is p- partly the disgust that the teachers of the law felt towards sinners, that disgust with their behavior and their choices, that, that sense of, you know, kind of righteous or self-righteous uh, indignation or condemnation over those sinful people, a uh, deep desire to be separated from what they were. So there's, I think, all of that there. I also wonder and speculate if there's not jealousy there. That if, you know, that Jesus keeps making this point about them, you know, I didn't come to call the righteous, I came to call the sinner. I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. And kind of constantly putting in their faces their own self-perception of who they are and that expectation that, that particularly the leaders in Israel had about the Messiah's coming, that he was coming kind of ro- to reward the righteous. And here's Jesus like doing healing with broken people and, and, and he's spending his time teaching them and investing in them. And he has like so little time for the righteous. You know, is there some jealousy involved? Like how could you be the Messiah and ignore us? You know, and, and, and so then Jesus tells these stories, like, here, let me explain to you why I'm doing what I'm doing, that you don't understand, that you, you, you're not comprehending why. And he tells three stories. So the first one, a shepherd has a flock of a hundred, one goes missing, he leaves the ninety-nine, he searches for the missing one, he finds that missing one and brings it back in joy. Then he tells a story about a woman who has ten coins. She loses one of the coins. She turns her household upside down, sweeps it clean to find that missing coin. She finds it and has joy that she's recovered what has been missing. 
To me, this, this, these series of parables feel like a prize fight, feel like a boxing match. The, the, the teachers of the law have thrown a, thrown a few swings at Jesus. Uh, I think they've missed. But they said, you know, you, you hang out with sinners. You welcome them at your table. You're obviously a sinner yourself. And then Jesus swings back, you know, and I think it's kind of left jab, you know, right cross, and then the left hook comes, the knockout punch. So you have, you know, the, the left jab is the you know, story of the lost, you know, missing sheep, the, the right cross is the story of the missing coin, and now here comes the haymaker, the story about a missing son. You know, I... I read these and I, I can relate to them, even though they're set in a totally first century context. But, the, you know, I'm not a farm person. I grew up in the city, concrete and chain link, and I don't know anything about, you know, sheep or herds or anything. But I've had a dog, you know, like, and, and if that dog went missing, I would search for it, you know, like, I would want it back, you know, I can relate to that, and I certainly care about money, and I've lost my wallet 10,000 times, and, and I'm so, like, known at the, the driver's license bureau in my town that I walk in there and they say, oh, Pastor David, you lost your driver's license again? I mean, you know, like, I, I search for that thing when it goes missing, you know, my wallet, and so I can relate. But then he tells a story about a parent and a child. And what parent doesn't understand this emotion of a child who's willingly, you know, kind of rebelled and said, I don't want what you have. I want to take what you've given me and go. And goes and, and the heartbreak, the separation, the sense of failure, the, all those things that are bound up with those emotions. And, and, and then the sun returns because they've come to the end of themselves, the emptiness of what they've chosen. And, and they come back and the father sees the son, you know, the story, and he races to him in such an undignified way. And he embraces the son and he kisses him and he, restores his place in the family and and then but this story is more complicated than the other stories because the other ones are just those straightforward here's the the punch kind of parable and then there's a twist in this story about the older son and his resentment of uh, of what what has happened to the family since the son has left and and his rejection of the son's return. And you have that additional aspect to it. But the center core is a missing child who's recovered and the celebration and joy of that recovery. And these are the stories Jesus tells to explain his behavior, his commitments, his, the way he's doing things. And I take from this Luke 15 three like super important things for me. And here's where I, I guess I want to land in this afternoon with you and kind of wrestle through and have some dialogue about. First of all, you have Jesus saying in all of these stories that what is missing is a passionate priority to me. Like a passionate priority. Maybe an over-the-top priority. That's why I loved that story that I read to you from Rick Richardson's book. You know, racing at 100 miles an hour, putting the whole family at risk. This passionate, I don't care, it's over-the-top, but I've got to find what's missing. That sense of over-the-top, passionate priority. Any church that wants to reach people who are missing from God's family... They're going to have to prioritize 
finding and connecting with and recovering those missing people above everything else. I know there's not a, it's not a, an evangelical, charismatic, uh, whatever else we want to call ourselves, kind of Christian, gospel-believing Christian that would ever say that evangelism is not important. And there's probably not a pastor who wouldn't say, I'd like my church to be more evangelistic. But I can guarantee you, you will not be, no matter what you say, unless that becomes this over-the-top priority in regards to everything else. I know that sounds harsh. I'm just trying to be honest. I'm just trying to tell you what I believe and what my experience is, that unless that growing that way, by reaching people who are missing from God's family, unless that becomes like number one by quite a lot, it will never make the top ten. It will not fall in the top ten actual practices of your church. It's so difficult. It's so hard. Why do we begin our day talking of Numbers 11 about hardships? Because this is hard. You know, if we think church life is hard, this is hard. Reaching people who are missing. Uh, it's not hard. It requires so much expertise and skill from us. It's hard to make it that kind of commitment. To do what Jesus says that he is committed to doing. That putting that at, at the front of everything else. Why is he not spending all his time arguing with the teachers of the law, debating with them about matters of, of faith? Why is he not focusing his, all his energy uh, on bringing and blessing and, and healing them? He says, I'll tell you why. Because there's some who are missing from this, you know, the purse, from the flock, from the family. And they are my over-the-top priority to reach. That's number one. Secondly, the thing that comes out of this passage and all the parables is there's like really hard work involved in this. I mean, you know, I've been to Israel a bunch of times. They don't, they don't, you know, they don't, uh, you know, herd their sheep. What do you call it? Lead flock? I don't know what you call it when you do, you know, get sheep where they should eat and drink. But they don't do that like in the Galilee on the, you know, there's so little like flat land, right, in Israel. So little easily kind of, you know, uh, uh, tilled land. And so where are all the flocks? They're in these like craggy places where that can't be farmed. And, and, you know, so you lose one and all of these ravines and hills in Israel. And, and now you got to find that thing that you lost. I mean, we're talking about effort. This is not like, oh, there it is over there by the stop sign. I mean, we're talking about, you know, it's like going to be hard. It's, you're going to really have to work at this. And what does the woman who loses the coin do? She just like pat her pockets and look in her purse again. No, she takes all the stuff out of her house. Takes it all out. Sweeps the thing clean, finds the coin. There again, there's sweat effort in this. What about the father, though? What did he really do? I give the father every credit. Any parent who's invested emotionally and not giving up, not letting go, holding on to hope, praying for a return, the energy of that, wow. Just looking at the horizon every day, wondering, hoping, wishing, believing one day on the horizon my son will appear there. I mean, that energy, wow. That's powerful. That's courageous. There's really, really hard effort that has to go in to being and growing our communities in an evangelistic way. 
And then the last thing <clears throat> that's here, and, and this may be the hardest to me of all, you have the priority, passionate, you have the work which is strenuous, and then you have the sacrifices, the things that aren't done, the things that you don't do. And so you, you have the sacrifice, for instance, for the shepherd of, of putting the 99 on hold. They're not moving anywhere. They're not going to get more grass. They're not, in fact, they're, they're probably more vulnerable than they've ever been because of this passionate priority and the strenuous effort to reach the missing one. Then the 99 are, are there's a sacrifice being made. And of course, for the woman and the coins, she's not out at the, you know, down at the high street spending the other nine coins. They're just in the purse. They's not doing anything. But there is again this, this sense of things being on hold. And maybe most poignant of all, it's in the family. It's in the family. You know, when this, the, this older son, and, he's, and he feels like, you know, nothing's, nothing's been done for him. He says to the father, once this, the younger son comes back, he uh, says to the, his father, you know, you never gave me even, you know, uh, you know, anything to have a party with my friends. You know what he's expressing there? He's expressing the fact that his family's been in mourning ever since the prodigal son left. They've been in mourning. They sacrificed parties and like going on with life. Like, you know, it, it wasn't just that the father had been thoughtless to the older son and not generous to him. In fact, the father says to him, you know, everything that I have is yours. The, the thing that's been missing is the fact that the family just wouldn't move on on its own, you know, and forget the son, that the father held mourning in his heart for his son. And now that mourning was over and it was time to celebrate. But the, the older brother felt like that, you know, they had been hard done by, that he had not received his fair focus. And that will always be the case in church life, you know, like if we're really going to follow out this pattern. I love the way <clears throat> that, um, you know, that Franco Zeffirelli stages uh, the, the story of the prodigal son and Jesus of Nazareth, that, you know, that kind of whatever it is, eight-hour version. I love the staging of this story because in it he has Jesus inside a house with tax collectors in, at a party and he has all the disciples including Peter on the outside of the house they won't come in and he tells the story of the prodigal son and about the oldest older son resenting that as Peter stands outside the door refusing to come in and then Peter comes in and just you know I'm a sinful man you know like this this refusal to kind of embrace what Jesus's commitments are and what his priorities are and what his efforts are towards that that sense of you know standing at a distance or however that goes uh, there's you know there's things that are sacrificed and all of these uh, are challenges for us in growing our churches you know that that we, we want to be so we want to be balanced we want to do right by people we want to pastor them and care for them and all those right things that are so that are so good and and yet in, in order to actually reach people we don't know yet people who don't know the Lord yet that we would have to put a priority on them that would make us feel as though 
that we were kind of putting everything else on hold? Because that's here in the stories. The family's on hold, the pocketbook's on hold, the, the rest of the flock's on hold, that there would be some things that would feel like they're being put on hold in order to do that. These are really, really tough, really hard things. And the choices that we make and how we decide the, those priorities and that kind of focus and what our church is going to express. You know, someone asked me over the break, you know, what did I start to do on my list of, of things, you know, like that could be outward and just do something? What did I pick? And the truth is I picked a whole bunch of things, but the most important thing that I picked that took the longest to do was kind of rearranging the very life of our church to include others. That wouldn't be, well, they're out there and we're here, but we would kind of turn inside out so that we were a part of people in process. That was the most difficult work to do, you know, staging a crusade at the sports stadium. You know, that takes a lot of effort. You know, you have to involve other churches and that kind of thing. Doing servant evangelism every weekend where we're out doing cool things and silly things, giving away toilet paper door to door, you know, like, that's a good one. I mean, have you ever heard a story about conversion from toilet paper? I'll tell you one so that you have one now, okay? I'll tell you an actual story of conversion from giving away toilet paper. By and large, servant evangelism only is like a, a conversation starter. It's a sowing kindness out. It doesn't have like direct kind of, you know, here, here's action, reaction. Uh, passing out toilet paper, go into a, a neighborhood. Uh, this particular group that was doing a servant evangelism that day included a, a little girl and a and, and her mom, and they go to the door of a house, and they knock on the door, and a dad comes to the door, and the little girl sticks out this roll of toilet paper and said, we just want to give you this toilet paper from our church. <laughs> the dad takes the toilet paper, closes the door, he turns around to his wife, and here's what they'd been doing. They just had this massive fight together. He had been gone off to the store and with a list of things, and one of the things he was supposed to buy was toilet paper, and he hadn't bought it, but that hadn't been the end of their argument. That had started the argument, but the argument had gone from you never hear what I say and you never kind of care about what I tell you to I want to go to church and you never will take me, and, and it had boiled into a a spiritual conflict and 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 he turns around and says that church just gave me toilet paper <laughs> they went to our came to our church that weekend about a month later they gave their lives to the lord there's a conversion story about toilet paper but i mean we we do you know like so we 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 try to encourage people equip them to Pray for people at their office that are sick. Just take the risk when some coworker or friend in the neighborhood says, man, I feel terrible, or this is my... And just take the risk of saying, could I just pray for you? Ask God to, to help you. You know, I've never been refused. I've prayed for thousands of people who are not Christians. I've never been refused. I don't... I mean, I, it could happen. I, I, it just hasn't. I was flying over here to the UK a few years ago and I was sitting next to a woman on the plane and she was obviously in pain and discomfort. 
And we started talking. Turns out she was a professor of physics at at a university in California. She was coming here to the UK to teach at a some science conference. Uh, she was a Muslim, a woman, a Muslim, and and she had this. Uh, like gout-like condition that she she was just in real pain, and I she asked about me. I told her I was a pastor and that you know, but I, we just dialogued a little bit, and I, she kept grimacing every once in a while. Finally, I said, "Could I pray for you? Could I just ask that God would touch you and help you?" And she looked at me and she said, "You would do that? You would pray for me?" I said, "I would if you would let me." She said. Sure, go ahead. And I prayed for her. And I mean, just, I, I don't, you know, again, she felt relief. I hoped it was more than that. But uh, she went to sleep. It was all good. But, but I, I just think that, of course, we, this is what power evangelism. We got, you know, in the vineyard, we have some debate whether or not power evangelism actually works. Well, it doesn't work if you never pray for a non-Christian. If we just keep praying for each other all the time, it's not going to work. I know that. But if we actually do pray for people who don't know Jesus, let's see if it works. We do that. All these things, you know, like do all these things. See what what works. But I can't even remember why I started down this trail. There was a point I was going to make, and I can't remember it now. But there is a sense in all of this that you are leaving other things on hold. That things, sacrifices are being made. That there's a it's a triage situation on the battlefield, then you really are making those choices between flesh wounds and fatal wounds, and, and those kind of things are happening. And that's not comfortable. We, we don't like it, and, and worse yet, our people don't like it. And so we got to decide who's going to influence the culture and the direction of the whole thing. And here's what I'd like to do. I'd ha- like to have some discussion on the hard work part. And and I guess I'd like to rearrange this again in just small groups for a few minutes to talk about like what you, what you think, what has been your experience, or what are you finding is so hard about trying to reach people who are not part of what you... That's, that's how growth's going to happen, right? People aren't just going to get cloned, and you have more. To reach people who are missing from what you're doing now, what makes that so hard? What is the hard work part of that? I'd love to hear uh, some feedback about that. So could we take a couple of minutes and rearrange and get in some of those uh, little clusters and talk about that, okay? What makes it so hard to rearrange or, or to, you know, to actually reach those who are missing. sensing
Let's have some. Uh, let's have some feedback. What's involved in the hard work of recovering what's missing? What kind of things did we highlight in our discussion? What do you guys have to say? Synthesize for me there, John. As a, um, I don't know whether as a church we're ready for the full cost of seeking the lost, to be honest. So. But you're talking about the cost that's both personal and kind of corporate. It's both the, the church pays a price and also the leader pays a price. Yeah, both. Yeah. And the people in it. Because to, even when we did an alpha course, we had to stop all of our small groups because we had so many people on the alpha course. So the whole church doesn't get fed, if you like in the same way but we knew that we had to do it because there's so many people on the Alpha course and we saw fruit of that Yeah. but there is a cost for sure right there coming from a rural context um, out of the countryside obviously it's rural right? um, the greatest hindrance to mission and evangelism is the church that's there already the established congregation who were uh, uh, universally against mission so now the, um, the mission is funded by private individuals in the church there's no mission fund as such um, at the annual general meeting a year ago the church voted against giving its money away because it couldn't uh, afford to do that mm-hmm. and I decided this is one of the, the things of a dying church now that no charitable giving so I said I was going out for a year for two weeks of the, the month start a couple of churches in the village hall in the school and um, since that time I said and you can't come to it because it's for the de-churched and the unchurched and that has caused the most enormous amount of stress during the last year keeping the church out of the new churches in that approach you wouldn't think that would be the case but it, it has been and they sent spies in I've come, I've come to look at it for my grandchildren and things like that and um, the, the nervous energy when you're out doing mission, preaching, and one of the rules was we, we were going to do, we weren't going to have any rules, was one of the rules, because the, the language of the church had become so legalistic, um, should, must, and ought, and I banned all, all should, must, and ought from the new church plant. And um, then emails came in, you know, and, and, and whatever about trying to, close it down but we're going to carry on for, wow. for another year yeah uh, got the, the vote on wednesday good for you that's right who else something hard that part of the hard effort of reaching the missing what did we else did we say please 
Sometimes you never know how long things take, so sometimes people can't commit because they, there is no end time. Yes, yes. Just how long it might take something, some effort. Very good. Now, there's a lot of conversation going on and not enough reporting. Yes. I think when you work in one area but your church is in another area, I think that was a discussion that we had about you wanting to invite people into church but you work in a completely different community. Yeah. Anyone else? It sounds very basic but simply that people don't care enough. They actually don't care enough about those that aren't there um, to be motivated to spend time and sacrificial time, perhaps from families, perhaps from holidays, perhaps from other things. There just generally isn't the compassion for the lost to the extent that makes people willing to sacrifice for that. Yes. Yes. We need more compassion. I think sometimes people's lives are so busy and full with their family and their career and, you know, um, getting on with their lives and their troubles that they don't have any energy left over because it's really ener- it's a lot of energy, isn't it, to get to know people you don't know and invest in them when it's much easier to just be a club with your friends and do life. Yeah. Oh. Thanks, Mark. I, th- I think um, a lot of people in the church probably don't believe it matters. Um, a lot of people don't really think people are lost without Jesus. Um, they may think possibly it would be nice for other people to believe in Jesus. So that's, that's one thing. Um, I think as well, um, we get into patterns of relationship with people, and once we're in that pattern, it's quite hard to change it. So I've got a, a missionary friend that says that whenever he meets somebody new, he always will, will try and tell them he's a Christian, and he will always try and offer them something out of that fairly quickly. Um, he says that sometimes that means that he doesn't develop relationships that he could have developed, um, but often he finds who's hungry and who's open to yeah. it very quickly. Um, I, I know my, my role as leader of church, there's only a few contexts in which I can easily meet people like that. And if I've been in a relationship with them for a couple of years where I've never taken a step of offering or, or opening up something um, then unless God shakes it up by, by a situation of difficulty and problem in their life, which changes everything, it's going to get stuck in that pattern. Um, so I, I need to be open to those times when it's being shaken up and yes. probably also try and build slightly different patterns of relationship uh, to start off with. Mm. Very good. Thank you. I think um, people don't realize that you need to be intentional as well um, in, in actually looking for people um, and that I think a lot of people assume that people are just going to come and walk into church rather than actually it may be it's actually only through relationships that you have yes 
Thank you, old man. Um, I think there's something about... Well, he is old, isn't he? Yes, he's very old. Uh, it's actually his birthday today as well. Did you know that? Yeah. Yeah. Was it yesterday? <laughs> oh, it was yesterday. There you go. Your own brother who cares? doesn't know what who your cares? birthday is. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. And he's still how, standing. How old is he, Steve? <sighs> I lost track. I lost track. I think there's something about... Um, we, we were reflecting two things, really. One, we have quite a big front door. We have lots of people coming in. I don't think we have too much of an issue of lost people coming to us. It's actually keeping them. Mm-hmm. Um, we have quite a big back door as well. Um, that's a challenge for us. Um, and I think for a big chunk of our church, and I'm talking about us personally, being an Anglican church, quite a traditional church, there's there's a bit of a an automatic mission anyway, just because you are the institutional church. And there's an issue about people not realizing how found they are. And if you don't know how found you are, you don't know how lost other people are. Mm. And it's that depth of conversion, um, that sort of real impact. And those who've had that real encounter impact get mission. Those who haven't, don't. That tends to be our sort of... yes. That's realizing right. how found you are. Does that make sense? You're it right. does. Said something useful. Nothing like brotherly love. <laughs> Anyone else? Right back there. I wonder if we've become too anxious to upset people, to politically correct, to, to, you know, we don't want to upset the apple cart, um, say somebody's lost. You know, that's a bit of a shocker, really, isn't it? <laughs> uh, there isn't a sense of urgency about it. You know, time is short. Yes. You just want to see me run, Jane, didn't you? I did. Um, I think coming out of not realising how found we are is uh, something we, you know, probably shouldn't suffer from, but is a fear of rejection when we are presenting uh, the gospel to other people or, or, or putting some of ourselves out there with them. Give that back to them for a second. I just want to ask Jane, like, you guys visited our church. You actually came to the Desert Vineyard. What, what was your impression? You just came for a weekend, for a service on a weekend. What was, what was your impression? It was hot. Very hot <laughs> we there. We loved it. I feel the cold. Very hot in the desert, yes. <laughs> um, well, it was just the most um, welcoming relaxed, easy environment, church environment, I think, I've ever gone into. And it absolutely, we were there for uh, one service and uh, we came away with a lot of ideas and a real sense of God is there. Um, When we pulled up outside the church, it was about 140 degrees in the shade. (laughs) That's not Uh, true. Except there there wasn't any shade. Uh, And... um, (laughs) 
then we came into the church and it was cool and dim and very kind of soothing, sensorily soothing. Uh, and when I came back to England, where it's usually cold and wet, I thought, well, what do we need in our church? We need them to be. It needs to be bright and warm and dry yes. to, 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 to to be welcoming and to create an environment. Yes. And one of our most of our churches, they're they're dank and dark and dreary. So uh, I took that that kind of uh, um, what's a nice environment to come into. That's just tip of the iceberg. There were lots we took away from that. That's great. I appreciate that. They know I'm not lying then. Anyone else have something that came out of your conversation? You know, I think that the, they just touched on something about the contrast between the environment outside and, and in. I think in one of a thousand ways that what we want our churches to be, however we engage with those who are disconnected, you know, whether we're engaging with them in the community and in the way in which we serve or we're partnering together to help our community or however we're engaging inside or outside, that what we want to be is a pleasant surprise. <laughs> we want to exceed expectations. I've had a, a, some of my children, three of them, live in New York City after they graduated from university. And, and I, I don't know how I ended up with all these children that want to be artists, but I did. And, and so what do artists do in New York City to make a living? They wait tables, right? They they weighed tables, so they all three of them became somewhat experts on working in the restaurant business in New York City. And and there's a, a absolutely unassailable truth about succeeding in a restaurant business in in a major city like New York, full of fantastic restaurants. You know, a whole restaurant culture there, just enormous. And the the rule of success that is unassailable is. Uh, under promise, over deliver. That's how you succeed. You under promise and you over deliver. And if the church could just do that with people who are not consumers, not familiar yet with it, if we could over deliver on whatever, you know, like their expectations were, that we could be a pleasant surprise, you know, that's the thing that that we've watched as a trigger in so much growth in terms of evangelism is in whatever in context we're engaging people, we are not what they expect. We are, we are not the caricature that they have in their mind of how they're going to interact with, with uh, Christians. And that is, a, I think, a, that's an, a pretty important part of the journey of finding faith is that discovery that we have initially in a horizontal way, but it eventually it becomes vertical. God is more real than I thought. He's more near than I thought. He's, he's more loving than I thought, more merciful than I thought. Whatever it is, it's part of that, you know, it's, it's a surprise to me that has opened up my heart to, to make some choices. Um, I want to just talk before we have a time to pray for each other and do some ministry together. I just I want to underline a couple of things, kind of coming out of what the hard work is that that I would I would want to say we really invest some of that energy and and priority in. Uh, one of them would be proclamation that that we get that we put hard work in proclaiming the central truth of the gospel. 
And, and I follow Acts 10, where Peter's worldview is blown open by the vision of the unclean, you know, things to eat and the command of God to go to Cornelius, the centurion, Roman soldier's home. And, and that conviction that he has even entering that home and crossing that threshold and breaking those barriers of separation between Jew and Gentile and coming into the home of the circle of the family and friends of this Gentile soldier. And, and Peter says, now I know that God doesn't show favoritism. Now I know that God deals with every person from every place and, you know, according to, you know, the, the intent of their heart and what they do. And, and then, you know, it begins to try to, you know, tell the core message of how God has acted towards the world in Jesus Christ. And he gets to that point about there's forgiveness of sins in his name and boom, it's over. I mean, this, this central thing of proclaiming that in Christ God is reconciling the world to himself, to, that that message, that proclamation is in what we do, whether it's, you know, serving on the streets. We do this stuff where we get people together on Saturdays and we make hundreds of sack lunches and we, we know where all the homeless camps are. And I mean, we have a meal that we invite everyone into uh, once a week, but we go out on Saturdays and we take these sack lunches and we deliver them to these camps and we sit down with them and we ask them how there are and we talk about, you know, some of the issues and we pray for them if they'll let us and and we just hear their life. And, and even in that context, even like, you know, on, it's not like we're making, forcing people to listen to the gospel, but we're building that relationship where there's the possibility to share that personal witness of, of, and confession of what we found in Christ. And we're looking for the ways in which that's done. And, you know, one of the things that we do in our weekend services, you know, people say, well, are you just like, you know, talking to lost people all the time? No, not, not at all. I'm trying to talk to everybody. I'm swinging with both fists. You know, I'm sorry for all the boxing analogy, but it is a fight to me. It's a fight that I have to put everything into. And so I'm trying to speak to the convinced and the committed to make them more convinced and more committed. And I'm also swinging at those who are unconvinced and uncommitted to try to bring them to a place of decision. So I'm doing both at the same time always. You know, always trying to do that. And, and that sense of proclaiming within what we're doing consistently this core message that God is in Christ to reconcile us back to himself. And that that is kind of this consistent, if you will, flavor or smell, fragrance of Christ among us, this central thing about the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God and the reach of God into our lives through his son. So just that hard work of trying to invest in what we're doing, that proclamation that is obviously, you know, if you have responded and believed it, you've heard it so many times, but what if you haven't? What if you have never heard that? I grew up, I never heard the gospel. Never heard the gospel. I had no idea. When I heard Christmas songs, you know, in the season, and that, you know, what is it, the silent night, Lord at his birth, I thought Jesus was an English Lord with a manor house. That's what I thought. I didn't know who Jesus was. I didn't have any clue. No one had ever communicated to me the kind of core of what is this message that Christians believe. And it's not complicated to, to communicate it in a very simple way, in a very gracious way. And getting good, getting our small groups good at that, getting, 
you know, the people that serve the, the poor are good at that. You know, that, that the hard work of, of, it's not just for preachers to proclaim. We proclaim in every way in our life and with our words. But that that's something that we do together, that that's something that the church is a part of and not just, you know, a few speakers or a few people that have the platform, but that's what we do is proclaim, that that's what we're doing together. There's hard work involved in that. Secondly would be demonstration. You know, demonstration. Actions, not just words. You know, things that demonstrate that Jesus isn't just a memory. He's a living Lord. He's a the, the risen Savior. That we're trying to demonstrate that in compassion. We're trying to demonstrate that in faith. We're trying to demonstrate that in believing that God can intersect with our lives and bring His power to bear to change our circumstances or our health or whatever's going on, you know, just believing for that stuff and, and praying and, and, and connecting with people to see meaningful change happen. I know that's probably just, that's what we're all about together is that kind of thing. But that, doing that with an awareness that people are watching, that, that they're looking for evidence, they're looking for credibility, that, that what we say in our proclamation is real third thing would be explanation. If you're going to have an environment that has a lot of un- uninformed people, a lot of unconvinced people, then you're just going to have to get used to explaining things all the time. Kind of just explaining things. You know, we, we just try to always, you know, this is the, this is the key about having, you know, having, being in a context where there are a mixture of people. Again, I, we've tried to create our church to be that place, but you might create other contexts. But the key for unconvinced and uncommitted people to feel like they're supposed to be there, that you didn't show up at the door in your curlers, you know, with the house a mess, the key to that is just these little reminders that, that they're being addressed, that they're, they're being thought of. You know, you don't go over the top and, you know, make you know, make them wear a special hat because they're new or something. You just simply, you know, say, and, you know, you might not know this. Or whenever I'm talking about the Bible, I always, you know, say, like, you know, you might not be familiar at all, but let me tell you where this is that we're reading or what's going on. Just those touches say to someone who's brand new, they thought about me being here. I must be welcome here. They thought about me in advance that I would be here. And so it must be okay. I feel more comfortable that they know I'm here and they're glad I'm here and they're, you know, thoughtful that I'm here. Just those things, explanation, getting better and better at, at explaining things that, you know, for the uninformed and unconvinced. And then the last thing, or well, almost the last thing, is invitation. Invitation. We just got to get we just got to get great at including people, and that's not just inviting them to church. That's inviting them to into our home for a meal. It's it's inviting them into a, an activity that we're having. Just just getting great at including people, like that we don't want to 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 leave people on the outside, and and they, they have choice. They you know they decide what they want to come, but. It's been my experience that even with the most secular people, I had this great, great uh, encounter one time, series of encounters with a, a professor of microbiology who 
was a, a very articulate uh, atheist and, and uh, particularly delighted in humiliating Christian students in his classes. And, and I was invited to have a series of public uh, conversations uh, with this guy uh, of, about religion and faith and science and creation and evil, all these different things that we tackled together and just invited a huge crowd turned out for these things because it was like, you know, who's going to win the lion or Daniel or, you know, the fire or, uh, and, and it was so funny to watch. It was so funny to watch that, that I, I, I took this guy out to lunch beforehand. He was so wary of me. He was just on his guard to the nth degree. And I just wanted to say, I thought, you know, before we did this, we just get to know each other and be friends, and, and he was just like, oh, you got to be kidding, and the first debate, he was like, you know, he was, it was very antagonistic and kind of addressed me in a dismissive way, and, and he was surprised by how, uh, you know, how I responded to certain things, and, and, and so we met again after that, before our second public thing, and he was much kind of less aggressive and kind of, I, I knew it. I knew what would happen. He eventually told me his story. I knew what the story would be. I knew it. Grew up in a fundamentalist home. Just had the Bible beat into him. And the expectation that oftentimes, you know, uh, what, where our children's faith crashes and burns is that they're expected to be, to not, you know, they just don't know the mercy of God. They don't know how merciful God really is. You know, their expectation is they're never going to need that mercy. You know, somehow that, that's communicated to them. And, of course, they do need that mercy. And anyway, so I knew what I knew what would happen. And he told me his story. And, you know, again, it was just I didn't try to twist his arm. And we had a third one. And by the fourth thing that we did, he started referring to me. Where it started as I was some, you know, like, this idiot, you know, and, and by the, the last public discussion, which was only for professors and teachers, and it was all about faith and education, and the last one he kept referring to me as his friend, my friend David says, and, and at the end of these things, he, he, he uh, calls me on the phone and says, David, can I come to your church? I said, well, yeah, you, you can come, I'd love for you to come, you know, he invited himself, you know, like... Like, I, I thought, wow, sure, of course, you know, that's, that'd be great. He brought his sons, and they came, and, and after they came, afterwards, he said, came up to me and said, that was very interesting. It wasn't what I expected at all. That was really, I actually kind of liked that, and I said, that's great. I said, I want you to come back any time, and so he did for a couple of weeks. Then he calls me on the phone and says, he said, David, um, would it be possible for us to, like, be members of your church, like, belong to your church, and but I don't believe in God. Would that be possible, like, to do that? And I said, well, you wouldn't be the first person like that at all. You know, like, that would be fine. You know, you can, you can come and belong and not believe in God. And it's just so interesting how, how just being kind of gracious and open and including in our life, it breaks down some of the most potent barriers. Most people would have looked at him and thought the strength of his resistance was intellectual and his profound intellectual has all sorts of arguments against the existence of God. But the, the real like armor was emotional. The real armor of his life was emotional. And just the, the willingness to kind of include... I don't know, you're going to... You know, Am I going to convert you? I don't know, but I'm going to include you in my life. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna try to 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 reach out and someone. We can't do that for everyone, you know. And and if, of course you're gonna have to figure out along the way who's hungry and who's not, you know. Like it's not like we abandon people if they don't show an openness. No, we do what God tells us to do. But among the people that we invite and include in our lives, some of them will at some point be spiritually hungry. And there'll be tremendous opportunity in that. And, and that invitation, what we talk about in our church is that we want to be by nature invitational. We want it to be natural to us. Like, hey, come along. You know, you're going out after a service and, and you're going to go have coffee somewhere. And there's someone, hey, come along. Come and join us. Be, be a part of what we're, what we're trying to walk out, what we're trying to figure out. And as that becomes natural to us, then... Again, all these bridges that we're trying to intentionally build in order to carry the cargo of the gospel across, all of these bridges that they're there, and people decide when they want to you know, come to the center of that bridge. They decide that. But at least we've been you know, hard at work, right? Doing the hard effort in, in these kind of ways that have absolutely are going to have fruit. They're going to have fruit to them. It may take a while, but they're going to have fruit to them. What else? I wanted to say one more thing, and then we'll pray. What was it? If I can remember it. Okay, here's... I want to, I'm going to just give you shotgun uh, as, about sacrificial choices. Some of these are reminders, uh, but th- these are the things that I would say to you in terms of we want our church to grow, we want to be outward, we want to reach people who are missing... That first of all, choose to live with limitations, those sacrifices that you're going to make, those things are going to put on hold. You choose to live with those limitations. You, you're not going to meet all the needs. And, and so in that prioritizing, you decide, well, I'm, there's limitations and I'm going to live with those rather than what happens, tends to happen in church life is the little capital that we've had is spent in a thousand small ways and so nothing particularly substantial happens in anything. And if we want it to happen substantially in, in evangelism, then we're going to live with limitations in other things. Embracing an overtop emphasis on evangelism, that is that passionate priority. Just like, how can, how can we work that out? I think that in a church that's going to change, and you don't have the same freedom I had to change things and blow them up and run off hundreds of people and all that stuff, and, and very uh, unhappy, and I mean, I actually said to our, our church in those days, and, and everyone was mad at me because I was changing things, I said, if you don't like what we're trying to do and reaching lost people, I need your chair. That didn't make anybody happy that I said that. <laughs> from the front that I needed their chair because there were missing people who were going to sit there and they didn't like that and I don't blame them for not liking that but that was part of my over-the-top emphasis uh, uh, so you got to embrace that in some way you got to continually invest for others those are the thousand ways that you're building those bridges you know you don't know which ones are going to be necessarily kind of linked up but you're investing for others in a continuing way We've got to resist that inward inertia, that fallback position of self-interest. Let's, let's just be concerned for ourselves. You know, let's just take care of our own. You know, that you've got to, if, pushing that rock up the hill. You've got to welcome growth and change. Not fear it, but welcome it. Somebody asked me uh, maybe a year ago, you know, this economic catastrophe that's happened in my community. And so many people moving away. 
you know, because there's literally no work to be found. And so many people in my church are not educated, they're not professional, so they've relied on those construction jobs that are just labor-intensive, and all those have disappeared, and all of this chaos economically. Somebody said, how's your church going? I said, well, we're getting rougher and poorer. Like, that's, that, that was the truth, that we're getting rougher and poorer and, 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 but, but not reaching any less people. And, and I, I thought about that as like a curious kind of turn of circumstances. And then I recognized, you know, it's one of those things that happens where you go, I thought that was just like, like you know, uh, life. And then you see a little glimpse of God's hand. You know, you go, oh, like, Lord, you're doing this. I saw a little glimpse of the Lord's hand. I thought, oh, Lord, you're like purposely moving us kind of even rougher and poorer. Like you're, you're, that that's really what you have for us. Like, like it, it's not just that this is the way life is turning, but, but you actually are turning our face even towards things that are rougher and poorer and, and that that's our harvest field. And it, I had a different perspective. I thought, oh, I get it. I get this, that, that there is this shift that's happening. Anyway, that sense of welcoming that growth and change, welcoming the, the kind of rearrangement that God wants to bring and the refocusing that he wants to bring. Yeah, last couple of things. Pursue excellence. I know that sounds in contrast to... But pursue doing things really well. You know, again, sometimes we do so many things that we don't do anything particularly well. And having those priorities that say, you know, well, however, what else else we do, we want to really do this well. Really do this well. We have two different kind of restaurants in our community, kinds of restaurants. But we have In-N-Out Burger. Anybody ever heard of In-N-Out Burger? It's a famous California burger place. It's like original Southern California. They only serve burgers, fries, and drinks. No hot dogs, no onion rings, no nothing else. Just burgers, fries, and drinks. And they do it so well. It's so fresh that you, there's always a line. In all of their places, it's just tremendously successful. Then you'll go to a restaurant that's serving Italian and Japanese and Jamaican and Greek food and page after page of a menu, right? We want to be in and out burger. If we can only do a few things, let's do those like super good. Let's do those few things like super well. Not do just tons of things that we do mediocrely. And lastly, I'm going to leave this, but accept the challenge of the future. Friends, the world has changed. And it is changing. We know that, and it's always has been true. But there is, we're, we're in the midst of a shift that, that I think is like shifts that's taken, taken place in the past that have been socioeconomic and cultural. But the impact of that on how the church is, is it's unclear as yet what, where things will land, what challenges that really means for the church. This, this change that is taking place that is you know, global and generational but I would just say, accept the challenge of it, you know, like, I mean, some of us are older, like Mark, I mean, really old, you know, but I promised I would make fun of him after his birthday, but I did it anyway, and so I'm way older than him, so, but that sense of, I don't know, how many years do we have left of effective leadership, you know, I hope 
decades, even if you're in your 60s or 70s or like me, almost there. And, and you, you, you want to, you know, however, whatever, however much of the race is left, you know, that sense of I'm going to accept the challenge that the future holds. This is where the church has failed. This is where it's heartbreaking, right? This is where we recognize that what were we thinking? You know, when I first became a Christian and I read in the book of Acts about the Apostle Paul pouring out his heart in these places like Ephesus and Philippi, and, and you know, I, I thought, what's the church like there now? I mean, it was a brand new I didn't know anything. I just read in the book of Acts. So I get out a, an encyclopedia. The church doesn't exist there now. What happened? Is it just geopolitics? Is it just the rise of Islam? No, no, I don't believe that. Not, not the church that Jesus says he would build and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. What happened to that church? I'll tell you what happened. It, it lost its way internally. It lost its way. It lost its purpose. It lost its ability to engage with a shifting world. It lost its passion for what God had asked it to do. I think that we witnessed that in the decline of the church in places that it was previously vital and thriving. We have seen these kinds of issues. Let's be part of the solution and not the problem. Let's in, in our, whatever our race, however much is left in our race, let's, let's be part of what's going to meet this not completely clear and foreseeable, you know, where the outcome is challenge of the future by building and leading churches that are reaching those who are missing, that are growing because we are, are claiming, you know, for... For the Lord who died for people, their, their lives and their futures. So, anyway, let's, let's stand up to pray together. Could we take a moment while we wait on the Lord together? And I just want to give opportunity while we're waiting on the Lord for anyone who feels like Lord's put something on their heart that's prophetic, that may be for more than themselves to be able to speak that out. Maybe it's a word, maybe it's a particular need we should uh, invite people to be prayed for, but, but I just want to give that, that opportunity. So we're going to take a few moments just waiting, and if you feel like you have something on your heart to share, just speak it out where you are. You know, Just try to do it loud enough for everyone to hear, and I'll try to re-state re, uh, it as well. Lord, come, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Minister among us, Lord, we pray. Direct and guide us, we ask.